everybody, and welcome back to I Just Want to Talk About the Bible. If this is your first time joining us, then let me just say welcome to you. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Christian Keeter, and I live in the southeast of the United States of America with my amazing, beautiful, godly wife, Lacey, and our two wonderful daughters, Felicity and Serenity. So, as I mentioned in last week's episode, this week's episode is on the Trinity. And even if you haven't had the chance yet to listen to episode 24, last week's episode, you've probably already realized what this episode is on because I named it the Trinity. So, there you go. But this is a very, very important topic. It's a very uh, important one for us to understand. And it's a topic about which, you know, depending on your background and your experiences and um, just what you've heard, there, there's, there can be some confusion. And so we're going to spend this episode just saying, what does the Bible say about the notion of the Trinity? What does the Bible have to say about this? And I'm going to go ahead and say at the outset that obviously, needless to say, but I'm going to say it anyways, we can't exhaust this subject. I'm not even going to try to exhaust it. What I'm doing here is a pretty cursory overview of... Um, of what the Bible has to say about this topic. Because we could spend hours just focusing on each of the individual components that we're going to be looking at relatively briefly. And maybe we'll return to some of those in some future episodes. I'm I'm not sure, but but these are all very, very important things. And so as such, in the uh, description of this episode, in the show notes, I will put some links, and I'll probably even tell you in the episode um, what the links are to, or what they what they'll give you more information on when we get to uh, that relevant part of the episode. However, there's even more information that I you know if you want I can give it to you. You can feel free to email me and say, hey, heard the episode. I would like some more information about the Trinity. And so you can find all that information and the email and whatnot in the show notes of this episode. A few weeks ago, I um received an email from a listener asking about this very topic of the Trinity. And uh, because this person came from a background where the Trinity was just denied, um, the the background this person came from said there was no such thing as the Trinity, um, and uh, they had some questions. And so I gave this person some resources, some things they could read. And but I know what I know is this, or what I've come to learn is this: if one person asks a question, that means many others are probably thinking it. And so that it's it's this is just what I hope is that this episode will be um, an encouragement and a resource to even share with others who may be you know, asking similar questions, at least to begin the conversation. So enough by way of introduction, let's just get into the content. So what do we mean when we say the Trinity? When you hear somebody talking about the Trinity, what do they mean? Well, I mean, you can probably even hear tri, T-R-I, the first part of it, Trinity. Tri means what? It means three, like tricycle, right? So three. And so three what? Trinity refers to how there is one God. And actually, in fact, let me just read um, a really uh, helpful way that it's put here. And I'm quoting a, um, a website, and I'll put this link in the show notes to this episode. Referring to the word Trinity, it says, uh, this is a term that is used to attempt to describe the triune God, three coexistent, co-eternal persons who are God. This doesn't mean that there is uh, one God that sometimes manifests himself in one of three different ways, and he kind of like goes between those. No, one God who eternally exists in three different persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is also not um, 
like polytheism. This is not saying three gods. No, it's one God, but in three distinct persons. And so this really challenges our categories. Now, some people become a little uncomfortable whenever they realize that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. The thinking is, well, the word Trinity itself does not appear in the Bible, therefore it's not a biblical concept. But I just would like to challenge that thinking a little bit and say, well, you know, it's not a question of whether or not an exact word appears in the Bible, because Trinity is just a word that has been used to describe something. The question is whether or not what it's describing is in the Bible. You know, that that's kind of the real question of, okay, Trinity is just a word that is being used to describe a concept, so is the concept there? That's the real question, and so that's what we're going to look at. Trinity is just us looking for a way to articulate what we see in the Bible in a way that we can just begin to even communicate or even wrap our minds around a little bit. So that's what Trinity means, um, or is a reference to. And so now that we have seen that, let's let's go to the scriptures and let's see if this notion of Trinity can be backed up. And let me actually go ahead and do something I probably should have done even before now and just reveal my hand a little bit here and just say, I believe wholeheartedly that the concept of the Trinity is totally biblical. Um, I completely think that it's there. I 100% agree with it that there is one God who eternally uh, exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I hope through the course of this episode um, to uh, show you that from the scriptures. So let's begin with the notion that there is one God. So Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is an important passage. The Lord is one. Uh, in John 17.3, this is Jesus praying, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Hmm. The only true God. Next, let's, uh, let's look at Isaiah 44.6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So that's really strong. That's really clear. Um, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Hmm. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. It says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So right there it says, uh, For there is one God. But I want to back up a little bit in that passage where it says, uh, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So let me cross-reference 1 John 4.14 with this, and uh, it'll highlight something pretty important. 1 John 4.14 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. It says, The Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Note the word savior. Now back in 1 Timothy 2, 3 here, it says, uh, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior. And then later in that same 1 Timothy passage, it says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so who is the savior here? Is, is God the savior or is Christ Jesus the savior? 
you see how the lines are starting to get a little blurred here? And so if not, if that's not evident yet, it, it will be as we move through this. And the lines are supposed to be getting a little blurred here. They are. So now what we're going to do, we're going to look at each of the three. Uh, like I said, the Trinity is, is um, one God eternally existing in uh, three persons, three uh, coexistent, co-equal um, persons. So first we're going to start with the Father because it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What, we're going to look for some scriptures that, that describe him. Uh, let's see here. So John 3.16 Famous one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is a passage where we see the the father mentioned, because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Obviously, his only son refers to Jesus. And so this is talking about both the Father and Jesus. Uh, 1 John 3.1 says, see, uh, 3.1a, it's the first part of 3.1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. 1 Peter 1.3a says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 10, 21 through 22 says, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is the he re referred to there as Jesus. Um, but it says in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy spirit and said, I thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. One more quick passage. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with, which, with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Um, and so... Those are, those are just a handful of passages, needless to say there's many more. But these are just verses that show, that are referencing God the Father. Uh, that's And again, I could keep going on that, but these are passages where we clearly see that. So what about, you know, the notion of the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what about God the Son? And this is the question, is Jesus God? That is another way of asking the same question. Is Jesus God or is Jesus less than God? So let's uh, let's go to the scriptures and 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 see some things here. Matthew three one through three says, "In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what is John doing? John is preparing the way for the Lord." That's what, that's what it says here. But what's interesting, who comes? Who is he preparing the way for? Well, read down further in this passage, and we see it's Jesus. Preparing the way for Jesus. And so Jesus steps in, in into the slot of the Lord here. So prepare the way for the Lord, and here comes Jesus. This is very important. Let's look at a few more passages. In John um, 8, 48 through 59, it says... The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now let me pause real quick. This is really important. I read all these verses leading up to this because I wanted you to kind of hear the progression of the conversation. So resuming, uh, this is what it says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Um, and, and I and I chuckled just because it it's, I mean, they're obviously very upset about what Jesus just said. And so the fact that they respond in such a way leads us to ask, well, what, what did he just say exactly? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, some of you are already aware of where this is going, but if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, this is the burning bush passage. This is where um, Moses encounters the Lord on the mountain and you know the lord and moses have this whole conversation it kind of sets into motion all these things where moses is going to go back into egypt and god is going to use him as a deliverer to rescue the hebrew people out of egypt and this starts the whole wilderness wanderings on the way to the promised land it's it's a really big important event but exodus 3 it's when moses encounters you remember encounters the burning bush in fact let me just read verses 13 through 15 it's this is in this scene though um, see your verses 13 through 15. It says, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so we see whenever Jesus makes this reference, before Abraham was I am, that's what he's tying into there, the Exodus 3 thing where the Lord said, I am, he says, I am who I am. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then that's connected to the Lord, the God of uh, your father is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, this is an explicit claim to deity. This is an explicit claim where Jesus is connecting himself, identifying himself as the Lord. And so the Jews pick up stones to throw, the, throw it at him. These Jewish leaders don't like what he just said. But there's no denying it was a claim to deity. He just referred to himself as I am. Remember, they said, um, they said, uh, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And what is Jesus' response to that? It says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is, this is overt, guys. This is clear. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be equal with the one who was in the bush speaking to Moses. 
Let me read another passage from John that illustrates this. John um, 10, 22 through 42, which isn't as long as it sounds. It says, at, the time of the feast, uh, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one who is, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they don't like that. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so that's all right. That's another claim right there. That's clear. He's identifying himself with the Father. And yet remember, he's still distinct from the Father. The Jew, I'm reading on. This is resuming in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, they got it. Let me pause here. They they got what he was saying. He says, uh, Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them. And I could have just stopped the passage there, but I want to read it read the rest of this because there is a part that has potentially potentially brought up quite a bit of confusion. And I'm not going to resolve that necessarily, but I'm going to give you guys some resources in the um, episode description where you can do some research of your own. So resuming, it says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So I read the passage all the way out on um, the whole, um, uh, the thing that Jesus says beginning in verse 34 there, um, has been the, um, cause for much confusion. But like I said, I can't get into all that right now. So I'll just go ahead and leave some stuff in the episode description, multiple, uh, resources that you can look into if you want to know more about that. But the point is that this is a passage where again, we see, um, he says, I and the father are one. Quick note, though, and we'll come back to this. Notice where he says, um, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And he continues on. Some might push back and say, well, if Jesus is equal with the father, then why is he saying that the father is greater than all? Good thought. I appreciate that you're listening so uh, attentively. However, just hold on to that. We're going to come back to the notion of Jesus submitting to the father and all that. And that's going to address that. Just a couple more passages here. John 14, 8 through 11 uh, says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is another really important passage. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in fact, um, this is interesting. I have a friend who um, uh, actually I was writing letters to back and forth and uh and he actually wound up in, in jail. Um, he was a high school friend, and he and I were writing letters back and forth. And, uh, and he, while in the course of being in jail, um, neither one of us were believers in high school, he, uh, a group uh, came to study the Bible. So he started going to these Bible studies, and I found out that uh, he had been going to these. And so he and I are writing back and forth, and I'm, you know, we're, and I'm a Christian at this point. So I'm talking about this is great, man. I'm so glad to hear that. However, through the course of time, I came to realize that this was a group of people who denied the deity of Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus is equal with the Father, and so I began to discuss this with him because I believe the Bible is clear on this, and I believe it's actually a very, very important issue. It's an it's an issue concerning the identity of Jesus, and so this is worth something getting into and discussing. So he and I are writing back and forth, writing back and forth, and I'm doing all this research and stuff, but it doesn't really, um, we're not making too much progress, and and then finally, I feel like one of his final letters said to me something like, uh, man, listen, I just, I don't know if this was a phone call or a letter, but he was just, said something to the effect of, man, I just want to please the Lord, and I felt like in my spirit in that moment, I felt like the Lord is telling me, just step back, just step back, and so I was like, okay, yeah, ab- yeah, sure, absolutely. So a little bit of time goes by, but not much at all. And he calls me and he says, hey, man, I got saved. And you hear words like that and you're like, what is this? What do you, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, tell me more about that. And what do you mean? He says, I believe Jesus is God. And I say, man, that's great. Um, that's wonderful. How did you come to this conclusion? And this is the passage he referenced. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so the Lord used this passage to open up my friend's eyes and for him to be born again. So it's a very important passage in this conversation. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, one more passage about in this sort of vein. John 20, 24, or 24 through 29 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Let me pause here. This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so they're saying, We've seen the Lord alive from the dead is what they're talking about. So resuming, it says, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now listen to what Thomas says. And I'm quoting again. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's what he says to Jesus. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Look, Jesus accepts that title. He doesn't say, no, 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 Thomas, that's not right. That's not right. When Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, Jesus simply says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. A couple more things that I want to I want to highlight here really quickly. Um, in addition to these passages that are pretty clear and explicit about Jesus being, um, uh, Jesus being God, Jesus being equal with the Father, um, there's other things that Jesus does 
that only God can do. So, for example, he forgives sins. Here's a passage, Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately... Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. That's Mark 2, 1 through 12. So what's going on here? Jesus forgives this guy's sins. And people say, How can you do this? Who can only God can forgive sins, right? That's what their basic objection is. And Jesus proves that he has the authority to forgive sins by healing this guy. He says, what is easier, right? Uh, what he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And so then Jesus heals him and he walks. And this, this proves that he has the authority to heal. And this also proves that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so G we see Jesus forgiving sins. We see him calming the sea, um, Mark 4, 35-41 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, asleep on the cushion. Um, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So you might be saying, Okay, that's great, Christian, but how is that in any way showing that Jesus is, is equal with the Lord, that Jesus is equal with the Father? Um... To see why this is uh, really, really uh, important, we need to look at Psalm 107. So Psalm 107, let me read Psalm 107, 23 through 32, but keep what just happened in Mark 4 in your mind. Some went down to the sea in ships, um, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders." 
And so, listen, I'm not suggesting that Psalm 107 is like some sort of prophecy about what's going to happen with in Mark, uh, Mark 4. No, that's not that's not the point. It's not some sort of prophecy. In fact, if you read um, all of Psalm 107, it goes through four different scenarios of people who are in dire circumstances and how the Lord helped them and how the Lord rescued them and delivered them. And so this is the fourth of those scenarios where it's talking about some that went down to the sea in ships. It's just kind of, it's almost like, it's not like a hypothetical scenario, but it's but it's not necessarily specific. It's the circumstances specific, but it's not talking about like, oh, this is a reference to the disciples to come. But there is something I want to point out from this. In this, Psalm 107, who calmed the waters? Who made the storm be still? The Lord. Who did the people cry to in their trouble? And who delivered them from their distress? The Lord. And so we see Jesus occupying the slot of the Lord in that narrative. He's doing what the Bible says the Lord does. And this is very important. So this is another way we see. It's like, okay, we see who he is here. We're seeing clearly that he is God, that he is the Almighty, that he is equal with the Father. And this makes the disciples' question at the end of Mark 4 make more sense, where they say, who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? They're saying, who is in the boat with us? Even the sea obeys him. And so we're seeing this where these are, you know, this is important. So we see, and this is just a smattering of passages. There's plenty more. So we see from all these, that Jesus is equal with the Father, that Jesus is also God, and yet he's distinct from God. When we see that, we see he, um, we see in uh, one of these passages earlier in, um, where is it? Yeah, Luke 10, 21 through 22, he's praying to the Father. And so he's he's not praying to himself, He's praying to the Father. Um, we see in John 17, he's praying to the Father. He's he's very frequently referencing my Father. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone distinct from him. And so we see, we're beginning to see that they're both God. Yet remember, there's only one God, and yet they're distinct. And so we're, we're seeing exactly what we're talking about here. Um, one quick thing I want to include here as well is Jesus's humanity. Um, you'll hear people frequently say he was 100% man and 100% God. And so this is important because we're actually going to talk about a few heresies uh, at the end of this episode, wrong ideas that people have about Jesus or the Trinity in general. And um, so we have to remember that Jesus, yes, he is fully God. He is 100% God. He is equal with the Father. <clears throat> Excuse me. But he's also fully man. And just a few quick places to illustrate this. Um, he grew tired. Um, like we just saw from Mark four, it says, but he was in the stern asleep on a cushion or asleep on the cushion. So he's, he's asleep. John four, four through six says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So we see that he was weary. He was weary. This doesn't imply that God um, becomes weary because it says in, let's see here, Isaiah 40. At the end of Isaiah 40, it says, um, Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So Jesus growing weary here is a function of his humanity. It doesn't mean that he's not God. He is God, but he's also human. And we see that in the fact that um, he, he, he needs rest. He falls asleep. He needs food. He's weary. Um, 
He eats and drinks. Uh, let's see here. In Matthew 4, 9 through 13, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so my point is this just, it says he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. So he ate and drank, right? Um, let's see here. How about this one? He died he died. Now we know he rose from the dead, the resurrection. We talked about this in last week's episode, John 19, 28 through 37 says, after this, this is while Jesus is on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may that you also may believe. Now, uh, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So Jesus is clearly dead from this passage. They came and they broke the legs of the other two people who were crucified with him, because in order to breathe while you're nailed on the cross, you have to push up to be able to inhale because the way that your body is hanging up there um, is uh, is inhibiting breathing. So you have to push up each and every time, pushing up with your legs. So if you broke someone's legs while they're on a cross, they wouldn't be able to push up and they would die, presumably of asphyxiation, of lack of oxygen pretty, pretty quickly. And so they came and they broke the legs of the other two, but Jesus's legs, they didn't break because he was already dead. And this was proven by the fact that he was impaled with the spear. So he died. So we see all these things that point to his humanity, and that doesn't diminish his deity. He was fully human and fully God. And so this is important for us to remember. Now, let me return to what I was saying a minute ago, because people might push back and say, well, you're saying this, but it says that he, you know, submitted to the Father. How is this? How is this possible that he is, um, where he says the Father is, you know, greater than I? How, How can that be if he's equal with the Father? Let me read John 14, 28, which is one of these passages, and then we'll discuss it. Um, Jesus speaking says, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You're like, well, Christian, that sounds pretty clear, for the Father is greater than I. Let me read an excerpt, just really quickly, um, from a... um, from a, a, a website, and uh, I'll try to remember to put this quote in the show notes as well, but a commentator put this very, very well. This is what he said, with regard to the uh, phrase, for the Father is greater than I, and now I'm quoting. This is not a statement that focuses on the inequality of the Son, 
but a statement that deals with the functions within the Trinity related to mankind's salvation. This subordination of the Son was only for a period of time during his stay on the earth to fulfill the triune God's plan of revelation and redemption. However, there is a sense in which the Father, being the sender, is primary. So, now, uh, there are a lot of scripture references in that quote that I just read that the person who said that backed it up with a lot of scripture. So, I will, like I said, try to remember to put that in the show notes. Um, but but listen to what he says. He says, this is not a statement that focuses on the inequality of the Son. So, when we look at the Father is greater than I, it's not a matter of him saying the Son, that, they're, that they are inequal. There's an, uh, or unequal, that there's an inequality between them. He said, it's a statement that deals with the functions within the Trinity related to mankind's salvation. And so what do we see Jesus doing during his time here on earth? He's submitting to the Father. He's submitting to him. He's seeking the Father's will. He is, he is in complete submission to the Father. Just like it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Um, now, we know that Jesus also says that no one took his life from him, that he had the authority to lay it down and the authority to raise it up. We looked at that last week, um, and that, that was a slight paraphrase, um, so you can hear more about that from uh, last week's episode. But but we, we know, so this is, this is very important. This isn't a statement about um, quality as in like the essence. It's not like Jesus is in his essence lesser than the Father. It's that Jesus is submitting to the Father. And a helpful illustration could perhaps be to compare yourself to a king or the president, where it's like, okay, is the president or a king greater than you and me? Well, it depends on what you mean. Are they more of a human than you or me? Well, no, we're both human. In our essence, in our nature, we are the same thing. However, in another sense, they are greater than us because of the position that they hold, the office. We submit to their leadership. They are in um, like a, a role or position of leadership. Now, I acknowledge that any illustration is not going to be completely perfect, but that helps us to wrap our mind around it where it's like, no, the president, a king, a governor, the ruler is not more of a human than us. We're not unequal in that respect, yet it's a matter of function. We submit to their leadership. So notice how that commentator again said that, uh, see here, this subordination of the son was only for a period of time uh, during his stay on the earth to fulfill the triune God's plan of redemption, of, Re- of revelation and redemption. And one of the passages, in fact, I want to read both of the passages that uh, he references there. He references John 17, four through five, in which Jesus praying to the father says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now father glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So did you hear that? And so that's 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 pretty clear. And so that that's one of the passages they cited. And then the other one is Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So listen to that. It said that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equal with God. And the passage says that. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And so those are the two passages that the uh, commentator referenced when he said um, this subordination of the Son was only for a period of time during his stay on the earth to fulfill the triune God's plan of revelation and redemption. One more verse, uh, probably the most famous verse that talks about Jesus's um, divinity. I mean, John 1, 1. And uh, I'll read 1, 1 through... I'll read 3, 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And we see from later down in this passage in John 1, you can read the whole passage, it's a reference to um, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him uh, was not anything made that was made. And so we see that he was with God and he was God. It says he was in the beginning with God. So he had been there. He had always been there. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, this is a good point to segue into a question about the Old Testament really quickly. Someone may say, listen, Christian, if the Trinity is as you describe, then why don't we hear about this as much in the Old Testament? And I would I would challenge and say, we do hear about it. We just haven't really necessarily been shown it, but it's absolutely there. Now, this is something I'm not going to get too deep into. I'm going to put an article in the show notes where if this is something that interests you, you can do this reading on your own because this one topic would take probably an hour just to discuss it in and of itself. But the angel of the Lord... In the Old Testament, when we see the angel of the Lord, what we'll come to see about him is that he, the role that he occupies is he is distinct from the Lord, and yet he oftentimes speaks and acts as the Lord. And so there is this same sort of kind of, in fact, let me just give you an illustration. You'll see what I mean. Genesis 22, 10 through 11. This is when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. They go all the way to the land of Moriah. They go to the mountain that God shows them. They go up there. Isaac by, or, um, Abraham binds his son Isaac, puts him on the altar. And then picking up in verse 10, it says, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Okay, right there. Notice that I know that you, uh, for now I know that you fear God. But listen to what he says next. Seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, and you'd expect him to say from God. But he said from me. So let me read what he said again. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and not 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Do you hear it? Do you hear it in the passage how there is an overlap yet distinction between the Lord and the angel of the Lord? So first, again, he says earlier, that was Genesis 22, 10 through 18. It says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. But then it comes down here and he speaks again. It says, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. And he and he finishes out what he was saying. And so the, the second part is like, is he speaking for himself and referring to himself as the Lord or is he being a messenger for, for the Lord? And I think that there is overlap and I think the lines are a little blurry here. And so I think that we do have the notion of the Trinity in the Old Testament. So when we see the angel of the Lord... Um, if you do some research, you'll come to see that this is the the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus, before, well, it's before he was given the name Jesus because he had not yet been born. You remember the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus when he had been born, but he was, he was, he was God. And so we do see the notion of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to include a relatively lengthy article that'll handle that a lot more because that is just one example because that might have not compelled you. You might say, well, Christian, that's kind of weird. That's one passage. If you want more information about the angel of the Lord and and uh, kind of dipping your toes in the idea of the Trinity in the Old Testament, read the article in the show notes. So moving on, we've talked about the Father. We've talked about the Son. We've seen that they are both God, and yet they are distinct. And then uh, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Quick note about the Holy Spirit. He is not an it. Um, he is a person. And how can we tell this? Well, you look, he has all the elements of personality. So here are some examples. He can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, he can be grieved. So that's not something an impersonal force can feel or experience. He has a will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.11 says, All these, this is in reference to spiritual gifts, says, All these are empowered by one in the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So he has a will. He has a mind um, and he intercedes for us. Listen to Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and so we see that He has, um, He has, uh, you know, mind, will, emotions. Um, we see that He, one of the things He does is He intercedes for us on our behalf. Um, he teaches and guides. Uh, John sixteen twelve through fifteen says, uh, "This is Jesus speaking." He says, "I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now." When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. By the way, you see all three members of the Trinity there. You see Jesus speaking. He says, all that the Father has is mine. And then he's also talking about the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. 
And so we see that he teaches, the Holy Spirit teaches and guides. And these are, he, he does more than this as well. I'm just kind of giving you a couple of things just to illustrate that he's not just a, an impersonal force. He's not just, um, you know, a thing or an it. He's a person. And granted, he's harder for us to wrap our minds around a little bit, at least to kind of conceptually imagine, you know, how, what he's like. But I mean, this whole thing of the Trinity is a mystery to begin with, is it not? We're doing our best to wrap our minds around a concept that is far, far beyond us, but nevertheless is true. So I use those as examples just to show that he's a person. Again, that's just a smattering. I could do a lot more. We could look at a lot more stuff, but again, could would take a long time. But is the Holy Spirit God? So I want to appeal to Acts 5, 1 through 6 to show that he is. Um, I'm just going to read the whole passage. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard, uh, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And so I'm not going to get into all the details of the story with Ananias and Sapphira here, but there's one thing I want to point out. Back up in that passage, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So let me pause right here halfway through what Peter's saying. Remember, he says that, he, that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. But then listen to what he says here. You have not lied to man, but to God. And so here explicitly, the Holy Spirit is called God. He's called God explicitly in this passage. Um, and so we see that the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, like the Father, is called God. And yet we see that he is distinct. We see that... Um, like uh, it said in the passage in John 16, we see all three members of the Trinity and in kind of distinct roles. When the spirit of truth comes, it says he will guide you into all the truth. And, you know, Jesus says he will glorify me for he will take what is mine, declare to you all that the father has is mine. I'm just kind of hopping around in that John 16, 12 through 15 passage there a little bit. So we see that he is, yes, he is called God and yet he's distinct from the father and the son, isn't he? Same sort of question about the Old Testament. Where is the Trinity in the Old Testament? Here's just a few quick verses. Genesis 1-2. Uh, Genesis 1-2. Sorry, verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 1 Samuel 16-13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Isaiah 11, 1 through, or 1 through 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is a reference to the coming Messiah, Jesus. Remember that 
uh, Jesus came through the line of David, and David was Jesse's son. But Isaiah 11, uh, 1 and 2 continues and says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so we see a reference here to the Messiah and how the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so we see right there distinct members of the Trinity. And so we we could keep going, but that's just a little bit. Okay, so we see just from these passages that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all referred to and identified as God. They are. We see them. Uh, we see they're they're all God, and yet they're all distinct. They're all distinct. Um, here, so for example, with salvation, the Father. Let's just look at one example of their distinct roles. The Father sent the Son. The Son came and died a substitutionary death on our behalf, paid for our sins with his blood, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and opens our minds to these spiritual truths. All three of them, God, but doing distinct things. Now, I just want to highlight a couple of passages really quickly where we see all three of them doing things. All three of them in distinct sort of roles in a passage. So Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 16 through 17 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see the Son is baptized, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. Or how about the Great Commission? Matthew 28, 18-20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven is and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so look at that, in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There they are. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. All three of them right there. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent his, I'm sorry, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you see God, the Spirit, and his Son. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So especially in those last two, you can feel the lines getting blurred a little bit between the three of them, and yet they're distinct. And so this is, again, far beyond, our, uh, far beyond uh, what we can really comprehend. In closing, I just want to highlight just uh, four quick heresies that have misunderstood the Trinity and, uh, and just address those. And I'll actually put article links for all of these in there as well. The first one is called modalism. And I have these articles opened up in front of me. Um, so basically, uh, modalism says that God is one person instead of three persons. So they would say there's one God, one person. And that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are simply different modes or forms of the same divine person. And so, and I'm, I'm quoting right here, according to modalism, God can switch among three different manifestations. And so this modalism would deny the Trinity. It would say there's one God, one person, and he can kind of manifest himself as the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. But those aren't three distinct persons. It's just one person manifesting himself in different ways. Here's the issue with that. Um, we see all three of them in the same passage sometimes. I read the baptism. 
the son was baptized, the spirit descended, the father spoke. Or what about Jesus' transfiguration where he's up on the mountain and we see him, uh, I believe this is Matthew 17, uh, we see him, uh, he's transfigured and the father speaks from heaven. Um, let's see here, I'm double checking that really quickly. Um, Matthew 17 and uh, yeah, transfiguration. And so we see uh, there's plenty of passages and I've already gone through a lot of them so I'm not going to reread them now. You can just rewind and listen to them but where we see all three of them mentioned or all three of them doing you know distinct things um we saw three of them mentioned the great commission matthew 28 um we see you know jesus saying the helper and in, in john 14 26 the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i've said to you so if the if there's only one person then how is the father going to send the holy spirit is he sending himself like well, that doesn't even make any sense and so there's plenty of passages that debunk modalism but that's one of them um another heresy this has to do with the divinity of Jesus, is called Arianism. And it's called Arianism because it's named after a guy named Arius. Um, and he goes way back. Uh, again, you can read about this in the article. But basically, um, let's see here. Um, I'll read this quote right here. Arius, uh, the guy after whom Arius, uh, Arianism is named, Arius denied the deity of the Son of God, holding that Jesus was created by God as the first act of creation and that the nature of Christ was anamoios, which means unlike, that of God the Father. Arianism, then, is the view that Jesus is a finite created being with some divine attributes, but he is not eternal and not divine in and of himself. This is actually uh, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Um, this, uh, they are modern-day Arians. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus is equal with the Father. They don't believe that he's um, God Almighty. Um, and so, uh, although... the things get a little complicated because they would refer to him as God, but you have to ask the question, but if you're talking to one, but is he God almighty? Is he equal with the father? And if you ask that sort of question, then you'll see that this, this is what they believe. And so, but we've already looked at the scriptures and seen, no, Jesus is equal with the father. Um, before Abraham was, I am. And you can just rewind and go listen to all these, you know, all these passages I've already said. Um, another heresy is called docetism. Docetism. Um, let's see here. Um, let me read a quote here. I'm quoting from this article. Docetism allowed that Jesus may have been in some way divine, but it denied his full humanity. Hardcore docetists taught that Jesus was only a phantasm or an illusion, appearing to be hun human, but having no body at all. Um, and it continues talking about this. And so it, it implies that Jesus wasn't, did, wasn't actually a human, wasn't actually, didn't even have a physical body. But we've already looked at verses that show that he was human, how he grew weary, how he ate, um, how he had a physical body, how he died. Remember, um, Thomas came and put his hands in the, the nail wounds and also on um, in the spear wound, right? We remember this. 1 John 1, um, 1 through uh, 3 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on, and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so what is John saying here? He says, we touched him with our hands. We felt him. He had a physical body. And so this is another passage that denies it. Um, 
There is one other passage. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, listen to this. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. Uh, I actually came across this one while preparing for this, and it's very strong against this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so we see Jesus, and it says, uh, um, see here, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It says, so we're talking about, this is an important thing in the Bible. It goes out of its way to say that, yes, he was fully human and fully divine. He, he had, he came in the flesh. And so that's the third one. And the last heresy I want to talk about is adoptionism, because we need to know these things so that we can see how they're just wrong and see the biblical responses to it. All right, so I'll quote another article real quick. It says, Adoptionism is a heretical theology that claims Jesus was God's adopted son. And so it says a little bit further down, it says, Adoptionism claims uh, that before his adoption, Jesus was a mere man, although sinless. However, we know biblically that all men are under the curse of Adam and and there are no sinless men. Further, no man can be justified by the works of the law, Jesus was sinless, but that was because he was not just a man, he was fully God as well. The pre-existence of Christ, the titles applied to Jesus, um, and the worship he received all bear witness of the divine nature of the Lord. And so, and that's ending the quote. And so this is them just saying that, you know, Jesus was just a person, a human that was adopted basically by the father, where this guy who just lived a sinless life, which is totally impossible. Um, the Bible makes it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that Jesus is the only sinless one. Um, we see that from, again, you can go back and listen to last week's episode for more information on that. But Jesus is God. He is, he's not just some good human and, uh, and I'll include these articles and you can read about this more, but even the passages that I have shared and read up to this point show that he talks about the glory. Remember in, uh, in John 17, where Jesus said, uh, let me scroll back up here. John 17, just this one verse debunks this entire heresy, which by the way, if one verse can debunk an entire heresy, then that's just weak. Like, in fact, it says in this article that this heresy that this was declared a heresy by the church in the second century. It didn't make it like any time at all. Um, but the interesting thing about these sorts of things is they kind of come around. They kind of come around with new spins on them under new names. But still, if you boil them down, it's the same thing. It's kind of like how I said a minute ago that Jehovah's Witness theology is just kind of modern Arianism. Uh, it's an ancient heresy with a new name and a kind of a, a new spin. But John 17, uh, it says... Jesus is praying. He said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed. Jesus, this is talking about the pre-incarnate state of Jesus. What about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and talked about how everything was created through him. So all of these things are full of holes, these heresies that I'm referencing right now. And so these, and that's not an exhaustive list of, you know, there's, there's no end to, uh, unbiblical heresies that kind of come around. And, um, you know, I believe that, uh, they are, um, I, I believe that the enemy will try to use these things to lead people astray because he, uh, the scriptures make it clear that he disguises himself as an angel of light. It says, uh, in second Corinthians 11, says, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. it says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In Galatians 1, 
Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so we see that, you know, the, the enemy um, works to distort the truth, to twist it, but we just got to stay close to the word of God. We got to know the scriptures to know, to be able to discern truth from error. And so, like I said, I will include a lot of information in the show notes of this episode, um, a lot of articles, and um, I didn't cover every passage. There's always more to discuss. And if there's something in particular I did not touch on as, uh, as it relates to the Trinity, email me, let me know. Um, I'll do my best to answer your question, of course, and I might even make it into an episode uh, as well, depending on um, just what the question is. So um, anyways, that's it, you guys. I hope this was helpful. I hope this is a resource that you can tuck away and use as needed and share with others. And I hope this is a blessing to you guys. All right, take care. Have a good week.